0: I would like to just reiterate something Pastor John said, and Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Father's Day was always one of my favorite holidays, because growing up in Washington, I knew that after Father's Day, there was only four to six more weeks until summer came. Uh, we can't complain. I was talking with Dwight Anderson, the uh, director of Prison Mission Association, this week, and he said it was 105 back in Minnesota. So, I said... <sighs> okay, uh, I won't tell you what I told him about the intelligence of people who lived there. But uh... <laughs> oh. last week we looked at the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And we saw that it's not just some dry theology that professors talk about in seminary, but it's actually a really exciting doctrine because it tells us that we can know for sure a lot of things. There's absolutes that we've got. We don't need to question. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to to question who we are. We don't need to question, you know, what's God like. We don't have to question all these things that people who don't understand the inspiration of Scripture question anymore. And today I want to take it to the next level. having that down, I want us to look at how do we interpret this book? How do we interpret it? You know, during the Dark Ages, the, uh, the church taught that the average person could not understand this book. In fact, for centuries, it was considered a sin for anybody who was not of the clergy to open this and read it. Okay. In fact, that doctrine was still being taught back when I was a youngster. Because I remember some of my friends who went to a different church telling me that they couldn't come to Bible study because their spiritual leader said that they could not understand the Bible. Now, of course, going back to the Dark Ages, most people couldn't read anyway. All right? And secondly, they didn't have the Bible in their language. It was in Latin. So even if they could read their local language, they couldn't read the Bible. And it wasn't until the Reformation and the printing of the Bible in the language of the people that Christians had the opportunity to study the Bible for themselves. Now, today there are over 100 translations of this Bible in English, okay? In English, over a 100 translations. Not only that, there are thousands of commentaries and study books that go along and and help people understand what the Bible says. Now, that's good news and bad news, okay? The the good news is, is that We got lots of helps out there. When I was just starting out as a pastor, no dinosaurs weren't on earth. Luke was thinking that. Okay, when I was a young pastor, I taught lay people in the church, normal, average people. I taught them how to study the Bible in Greek. We had Greek classes. And, and, and we had Hebrew classes. I don't know, Diana, I think, were you ever one of my Greek? Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Now all that's done for you. Okay. Everything that I paid thousands of dollars to go to, go to seminary for, you can go online and read for yourself. Okay. The bad news is that a lot of these commentaries, they disagree with each other. Okay. So if the scholars don't agree, what hope is there for the average churchgoer like you and me, to some extent, what what hope do we have to really understand what this book says? So today, I want to give you three simple rules for understanding the Bible. I'm going to give them to you up front, right away, because if you're tired and want to go to sleep... You can doze off if you want. You already got the three points of the sermon. All right. Number one, look at the context. I I had a seminary professor who told me the three rules for understanding the Bible are look at the context, look at the context, and look at the context. Okay. That's why it's number one. Look at the context. Number two, use the normal meaning of words. And number three is interpretation comes before application. And we're going to look at those three things this morning. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about my daughter, Christy. Okay? Uh, Christy, when she was in high school, belonged to FFA, you know, the Future Farmers of America. And she raised pigs, and she raised chickens, And she raised a cow. And one thing we learned from this is that if a pig and a chicken get in a fight, the pig wins. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you a test. What did I just say about pigs and chickens? How many of you heard that if a pig and a chicken get in a fight, the pig will win? Raise your hand. That's what you heard. Heard me say. Okay? How many of you heard me say that when it comes to economic policies, capitalism will overcome communism? That's what you heard. Okay. Good. Good. You know what that means? It means that you already understand the first two points of my sermon this morning. Okay? Look at the context and use the normal meaning of words. The context was raising animals with FFA. The usual meaning of words was a pig was a pig and a chicken was a chicken. So let's look at the first one. Look at the context. Every verse in this book has a context. Every verse has a context. Now, I started memorizing Scripture probably before I could even read. My mom would sit down with me and and she'd go over little simple verses, you know, and she would help me memorize them. Now, I highly recommend that. That's very good. But there is a danger with that as well. And that is often you memorize a verse out of context. And then it becomes whatever it is you 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 think it means. There, there's a danger of picking verses here and there from the Bible and stripping them of its context. Because we might or might not really understand it correctly. Now, the context is more than just the verse before it. Okay? Uh, sometimes we have to go back many verses or even chapters to get the full context. I'm gonna show you a little video right now, and I want you to watch it, okay? And then I'll come back.
1: We're learning how to read different types of
2: literature in the Bible. And we're gonna start by talking about biblical narrative. So narratives in their most basic form have characters in a setting going through a series of events. And how those events are selected and then arranged by an author, that's called the plot. A basic plotline begins with a
1: character in her setting, but then something new or unexpected happens, causing problems that lead up to some ultimate conflict, which is then
2: resolved and the character finds herself changed, living in a new normal. Now, in reading narratives, it's important to understand every scene in the context of its larger plotline. You can make the same story have a totally different message if you ignore where it occurs in the plot. This happens all the time when people read the Bible. Really? Yeah, take for example the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win a battle, and he requests a sign from God.
1: Yeah, Gideon lays a wool fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally
2: dry, and God does it. Now, if you look at this scene just by itself, what is the conflict? How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution? Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story, and it totally misses the point, because it's ignoring the larger plotline. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning, you'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading people, the Midianites. Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel.
1: Yeah, this is shaping up to be a good story.
2: But then Gideon's super hesitant, so he asks God to do this magic trick a sign so I can know it's really you talking to me and God stoops to his level he gives him a sign by lighting the fire on an altar so Gideon's already asked for a sign and that's not all in the next scene God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another God but Gideon's so afraid he does it at night so Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain, so he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign. Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs. Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not how can Gideon discern the mysterious will of God. Conflict is when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God? Okay, so then what's the resolution? We have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers, to fight in the Midianites, and God says, no, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns the favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches, and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon doesn't. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy. They start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story
1: isn't offering the reader tips for discerning God's will.
2: No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined.
1: Okay, so short scenes, like Gideon and the Fleece, are combined with other scenes making up a larger plot line. And tracing the conflict and resolution through the plot helps you see the message the author's trying to get across.
2: Now, Gideon's story has been set alongside many other stories that are also about these flawed, often questionable leaders called Judges. And each of these has its own internal plotline. But then altogether they make up a whole movement of the biblical story, the period of the Judges, and that has its own unified plotline. And there are many movements within the story of the Bible. Exactly. And all the smaller stories, hundreds of them, they fit within the context of their own movements. And then these movements together make up the building blocks of the grand plot line of the whole story of the Bible.
1: So no matter where I'm reading in the Bible, I need to pay attention to these different layers of plot so I can read each story in context.
2: Exactly. The Bible is such a sophisticated piece of literature. And so all these smaller plot lines keep overlapping, building up the tension. And when you back up, you can see how they've all been woven together into the unified story that leads to Jesus.
0: All right. So when we're looking at scripture and we're looking at context, we have to understand that there is The context is is often way back, or even maybe way forward, as we'll see it in a minute. For almost all of the Old Testament, one of the contexts is that they are living under the law of Moses. In fact, almost all of the gospel up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're living under the context of the law. So uh, let's take our Bibles this morning. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I want to look at a couple passages of Scripture that a lot of people take out of context. And I prepared this sermon, oh, maybe three weeks ago. And just this week, I was browsing a Christian website, and they used this verse, and they took it out of context to make it say just the opposite of what it says when you understand the context. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that what the scripture means when it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And the, the basic website says this, we can't imagine what God has in store for us. It is so great, it is so wonderful, it is so marvelous, and they went on and on and on. But if you look at the next verse, it says, But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches out everything and shows us, God's deep secret. The the verse isn't saying that we can't understand what God has, but rather that apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't understand what God has. But that's the ministry of one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal those things to us. Just the opposite of what people who take verse 9 alone say instead of looking at verse 10 as well. So here the context comes after. Let me give you another one. You might not like this one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Philippians 4, 19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, how I've heard this verse taken out of context. My RV needs gas. So God has promised me that he will meet my need and he will provide gas for my RV, you know, or whatever. What is the context of the passage? Look at just the verse before. Verse 18 says, At the moment I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. The verse 18, uh, yeah, verse 18 says that they gave to him. And verse 19 says, God will now supply your need. Is there a connection there? I think so. It's called the context. Now, to make things even more fun, the book of Philippians was written to Christians at Philippi. Philippi was a city that Paul went through on his second missionary journey. And we have to go back and and look at some things that happened there in the historical context. And I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul has even more to say about these Philippians, that I think adds to the context of what he's saying in verse 19. He says, now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. Now, Philippi was one of the churches in Macedonia there. So he's talking about the Philippians. says, they being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they're also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the, oh, listen to this, privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They begged Paul to give more in the offering. Okay? They said, let us give more, let us give more, let us give more. They even did more than we hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Even though they were extremely poor, they gave beyond what they could afford. And their giving produced even more poverty on their part. That's what the need God would provide for them. It's not a blanket promise to those who put their wallet in a vice and tighten it up as tight as they can so that nothing leaks out for the Lord. Okay? It was given to those who were generous in their giving. Now God would be generous in giving to them. So that's Context. And we're going to talk a lot about context in, in weeks to come. But I want to go on to the next one. The normal meaning of words. My, my dad had a saying since South's Father's Day. I will honor him by quoting him. Not some of the other things he said, but this one. Um, he said, say what you mean and mean what you say. Okay, now I have a problem with most poetry, okay? I am not a poetry lover, all right? Some of it's okay, but the problem I have with poetry is that the writer doesn't say what they mean, okay? They really don't. They, 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 they you know, I am a tulip in a field, you know, what, you know, it has a deeper meaning that you gotta figure out. And frankly, when you have the attention span of a two year old, you're not gonna spend a lot of time trying to figure out you know, what poetry means. So when it comes to the Bible, there are two schools of thought. One school of thought says words mean what they say. So take what is said at face value much like you might read a letter or a blog or a news article. You know, just take it at face value. The other view is that there is a deeper symbolic meaning that we are left to figure out on our own. And these are two big prominent divisions within Christianity of interpretation. Once we decide that the Bible is God-breathed, we did that last week, now we've got to decide which view of interpretation are we going to use to understand Scripture? The normal or the symbolic? Well, let, let's look at an example. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verses 6 and 7. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. Now, let me just stop right there. How many of you heard it's the lion and the lamb? Okay, yeah, it's not the lion and lamb. It's the wolf and the lamb. People misquote this all the time. Okay, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. Now, using the normal interpretation method, we understand that these verses say that God will in the future restore the animal kingdom back to the condition it was before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Using the symbolic or allegorical interpretation, this is just a metaphor. And what does the metaphor mean? Anything you want. Okay. You just... Make it mean what you want. It's symbolic, so you just got to come up with what it is. Your idea is, is as good as my idea. So, two methods of interpretation. Now, let me give you three reasons why I think normal interpretation is a better method for interpreting Scripture than the symbolic or the allegorical method. And the first one is this. God created speech so he could communicate with us, and we can communicate with him and with others. To do that, we have to take scripture at its face value. What communication is there if the meaning of the words is is not accepted by both parties? So there has to be a normal way of understanding what the words mean. The the second reason I think the normal interpretation is better is is because the first coming of Christ literally fulfilled Scripture, okay? Not symbolically. For instance, and we're not going to look at these, we don't have time this morning. Isaiah 7.14 says that Jesus would be born of a virgin. He was literally born of a virgin. We don't have to try to figure out what that symbolically means. Okay, Micah 5.2 says he was born, the, the, the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The world universally acknowledges that Bethlehem was the birthplace of Jesus. Literal fulfillment. Isaiah 53.9, he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Literally fulfilled. And the third reason I think that the normal interpretation is better than the allegorical, is if scripture is allegorical, then who determines what it means? Nobody. Everybody. You know? There's no objectivity left in Bible study. There are no absolutes left in the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was a young Bible student, I remember being taught the difference between inductive Bible study and deductive Bible study. You know what the difference is? Inductive Bible study is you gain the evidence first, and then you come to the conclusion, okay? Deductive Bible study is where you come to the conclusion first, and then you search through the Bible to gain your evidence. Inductive Bible study is better, okay? But inductive Bible study is only good if the words mean what they say. Otherwise, you can just go off and do whatever you want. Now, I'm not saying that every passage in the Bible has to be taken literally. Okay? Sometimes there are things that are figurative. Let let me read from what was probably my favorite book as a young pubescent boy from Song of Solomon's. Song Solomon one fifteen. Some of you know what's in Song of Solomon, and you got that, okay. Um, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. You want to take that literal? Picture that in your mind. Doves for eyes. Okay. Not going to. I was talking with Pastor John uh, earlier this week, and he said one of his favorites is when Jesus said, "I am the door." He wasn't saying he's a literal door. Okay, So taking the normal meaning of words doesn't mean you always take it literally. In Revelation 13, 1, it says, Then I stood at the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Okay? Is that literal? Or is that figurative? we've well, we got to go to the context. Revelation seventeen twelve says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Okay, so it's saying that that's figurative. That's an allegory. So, you know, work it out from there. There are Jewish idioms. There are Jewish figures of speech. There's even Jewish slang in the Bible. Okay. And the normal interpretation means you look at these things and you, you find the context and you research and, and that which is, you can take literal, and that's my first choice for everything. You know, you take literal, and if you can't take it literal, then you know it's figurative. For now, we just need to understand that the normal interpretation is the one that we are going to be using in our study of how to understand the Bible. And then quickly, the third one. Interpretation comes before application. There is only one interpretation of any passage in Scripture. There is not your interpretation or my interpretation. There's only one, God's interpretation. What did God mean when he had the writers of Scripture write down what they wrote? It's not one interpretation is as good as another. So the Bible student must diligently seek to understand the correct interpretation of any scripture before going on to application. Now there's one interpretation of scripture, but there could be many applications. And I would just give you this warning. Beware of any Bible teacher who skips the interpretation and goes straight to the application. Okay, beware. This is where the cults come in. Okay, the, the, they will take, well, a couple of the things I've talked about. Uh, they won't take the natural meaning of words. They'll say, oh, this means, you know, something else uh, type of thing. But, but quite often, they'll take a verse and they won't give you the context, they won't give you the understanding of the passage, they just go right away to some application that they have come up with. When we take Scripture out of context, we are putting words in the mouth of God that he never said. How would you like it if somebody quoted you about something very significant but their quote was completely the opposite of what you said. I don't think, I would like it, okay? I wouldn't like it if someone took what I said, took it out of context to make it sound like I believed something that I didn't believe. That's happened to me before. Well, if we do that, not only would we misrepresent God, but we would be leading people astray. We would be leading people away from God. For the first probably 10 years of my ministry after Bible college, I did youth work and I did Christian education work. I remember telling God this very clearly. God, I'll do any kind of ministry, but I won't preach. I won't ever be a preaching pastor. I don't ever want to be in that position of standing behind a pulpit and expounding the word of God. So much for telling God what you won't ever do, all right? But you know why I said that? Because I was afraid. Not afraid to stand up in front of talk people and talk. That's not a problem for me. Never has been. What I was afraid of was this, that I would lead people astray by falsely interpreting the word of God. When you come to expounding upon scripture, one has to be so careful to understand the culture and the background and the meaning of words and, and, and to get it all together, to get the context straight so that when you present the truth, you can present it knowing that to the best of your ability, you didn't mess it up. There's a couple warnings about teaching the Bible in Scripture. And I want to close with these this morning. First one's in 1 Timothy 1, verses 5 through 7. This fed the fire of my paranoia about preaching. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. There are those who would be teachers of the word of God, and they don't know what they're talking about. And you can turn on your television, you can turn on your radio, and you can find them. Not all of them on the TV and radio are bad. I'm not saying that. But there are people out there who are making the Word of God mean what they want it to mean. And if you send them $10,000, God will give you a blessing. He'll give you a Mercedes Benz for you to drive around. You know, all this nonsense, the health and wealth gospel out there. And then James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. If that doesn't put the fear of the Lord in teachers, nothing will. When we go to the Word of God, it cannot be taken lightly, it, it, it can, you, we can't just pull verses. You know, from one scripture, Lord, what do you want me to do? Open your Bible. Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, I don't like that one. You know, open up. Go do that likewise. Oh, okay. You know, what we got to be so careful when we open the Word of God. And those who would be teachers must be especially careful. For not only can they lead their own souls astray, but they can lead the souls of everyone they teach to astray. And that is a sobering, sobering truth for a Bible teacher. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, this is not a mystical book that we can't understand. Father when we understand it in its context and, and we just take it in its natural words and, and we look for the interpretation rather than just trying to jump off to applications, Father, your word becomes very much alive, and very exciting, and it makes sense to us. And then your Father, the, the, your Father, your, your Holy Spirit becomes our teacher and takes truth and then applies that truth to our life. Father, thank you for your word. Father, forgive us for for ignoring it, for, for taking it so casually. Father, may we be students of the book. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.